Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. There are currently over 100 historically Black colleges and universities in the nation. HBCUs were first established in the 19th century to provide educational opportunities for Black Americans. Due to slavery and then later segregation, Black Americans were denied admission to traditionally white institutions. Currently, HBCUs outperform non-HBCU institutions in retaining and graduating first-generation low-income African-American students. HBCUs represent only 3% of all four-year nonprofit colleges and universities, yet they enroll 10% of all African-American students nationwide. Now, for men who graduate from Morehouse College, the nation's oldest historically Black college for men, they not only attain college degrees, but they also become Morehouse men. But what happens when manhood is constructed against an unattainable and very narrow ideal? To talk more about Morehouse and masculinity in relation to broader ideas of race and racial leadership, this morning I'm joined by Dr. Saida Grundy. Dr. Grundy is the author of Respectable Politics and Paradox in Making the Morehouse Man. Dr. Grundy is a feminist sociologist of race and an assistant professor of sociology, African-American studies, and women's and gender studies at Boston University. A proud graduate of Spelman College and former Miss Morehouse, she received her PhD in sociology and women's studies from the University of Michigan and often contributes to the Atlantic Good morning, Saida. Thank you so much for Good joining morning. us. Good morning. Good morning, Sanat. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. That was, I mean, I can just tell you really do grasp the topic so well. So oh, thank yes. you for that. I am so excited um, about this book. Um, I got to read it. So I'm super, super excited about talking with you about the book. There's so much in it. So Listeners, we're not going to get to everything. You got to get the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> but first, I just have to say, I always read the acknowledgments first in any book. That well, well, look at you. Yes. This is like a good habit of yours. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a practice because, you know, I want to know where the author lands kind of in their yeah. intellectual community. Um, yeah. Also, sometimes, you know, this is where you get some good academic tea. Uh, you do. <laughs> you do. You definitely find out who's married to each other. Okay. <laughs> Well, I did not know they were married. Exactly. You're like, what? (laughs) So I started with the acknowledgement. And I mean, first off, I already knew that you are a very gifted writer. Uh, But for folks who may not be familiar with your work, I think the acknowledgements really set the tone for who you are as a writer, Mm -hmm. not just kind of Mm -hmm. your own voice, but also the community, Mm -hmm. the intellectual community, your family community, like all of that. And I'm not ashamed to say I cried when I read your um, and I don't know if it's because like I'm finishing, you know, my own labor yeah. of love, yes. you know, a book that's yes. also intimately tied to my life and to people yes. who yes. I care about, but yes. just the way you really talked about important people in your life, 
Um, and the purpose I feel like behind the book or the really thoughtfulness yeah. and care you put into this book, it just yeah. really moved me. Um, and I think it's relevant yeah. because like I said, in your intro, um, you are a graduate of Spelman. So kind of like the sister school mm-hmm, to Morehouse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you are a former Miss Maroon and White. Yes. Which is a Miss Morehouse college, which <laughs> <laughs> and folks can make sense of that in the book if they like. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's personal, right? The yeah, book is personal is. for it a lot is. of different reasons. Yes. And I think that is important to bring into the conversation before we get into the meat of the book. Yes. No, it, no, it absolutely is personal. So it's, it's, it's intellectually, I think that anytime I am writing, it is, is a personhood because I really came from not only a community of thinking people, but I came from a community of people, which most people don't know this, but Central Kentucky actually has basically an outsized representation of Black writers. So um, Belle Hooks, of course, who's a, a famous Kentucky, and she's not from Central Kentucky, but we have this whole tradition of basically Black people who not only found their voice, but found their, their purpose, found, they made sense of their Kentuckiness, they made sense of themselves, their ancestry mm-hmm. through the writing, right? And so I was really inundated with people who groomed that in me. Um, my parents certainly, um, you know, helped me um, find my voice by, you know, my, 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 my father in particular, um, you know, I live by the principle, you can only write as well as you read. Mm. Um, and my father is a voracious reader. And, um, you know, I, when I talk in the acknowledgement, you know, I say, you know, I grew up with, with being really like, the, the books in our house were sort of like a canopy of trees that were always peering down on me, right? Being a little kid and looking up at the bookshelves and uh, just really aspiring to be as important as those books because those books were, my father treated them like jewels. Mm-hmm. You know, my father used to sit at the head of the dining room table every night, that was like his desk. And he would be so careful with the books he would he would have this little ruler he would highlight his pastures he's a Virgo you can't tell and I would be you know um, on the living room floor with my sister and he would say Saida come here I'd be like four years old and say come here and he said I want you to read this and he'd point out a little passage from you know Vincent Harding or from you know uh, a Janetta Cole he would point out this little passage he said I want you to read this and then he would say tell me what you think and that communicated to me that love is someone wanting to know what you think. <laughs> so yes. that's, that's really what I, I got from that. So that's what you see coming through in the acknowledgments. And then, you know, when I got to Spelman, it was not only an echo of that, um, of that upbringing I had, but it was intellectually like an explosion for me. So one of the reasons that I wrote this book and why I focus on Black masculinity is because my intellectual journey at Spelman, when I was becoming a feminist in that freshman year and being exposed to all these texts, I was running home and calling my father and telling him about what I was learning. And he really got entrenched in feminism. So I really, this is for my father. This is for my uncles in terms of my, you know, those surrogate uncles, my father's best friends. These are Black men who never stop growing. These are Black men whose ideas about gender never stop progressing. And I have seen the capability of Black men who have become feminists in their lives, who, 
you know, their ideas about women weren't just, you know, the women they sort of owned. It wasn't about a daughter. It wasn't about a wife. It was about, it was about Black women working on them and then working on themselves in turn. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, my father is, uh, I think, a prime example of the capacity for Black men to be truly feministly progressive and, 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 and anti-homophobic and anti-patriarchal, which my father is all of those things. Um, you know, without, you know, even waving it as a flag, he is all of those things genuinely because he understood sort of intellectually, um, you know, what that meant for Black people, that he did not see Black people as half the race. Yeah, mm. there's so much there. And that is really kind of like a teaser for the book too, for all the <laughs> concepts that this book really is, is grappling yeah. with. Yeah. Um, because, and I think that's important and I'm so glad you shared that because this book is not bashing Morehouse or bashing right, Morehouse right. men, but it really is a book of hope and love and generosity. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, I, and I, I've said this before, it's like, you know, my relationship to Morehouse is is what, you know, uh, Audre Lorde would call the sister outsider, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, my understanding of Black feminism comes from that long line of Black women who could not divorce themselves from their racial struggles with, with Black men, right? So the idea of Black feminism is very centrally vested in the idea that there is no gender separatism possible for Black feminism, that Black feminism is entrenched with Black men. So even as Black men can be patriarchal, we do not have the liberty of basically abandoning working on them. So, you know, when we look at Du Bois, when we look at Frederick Douglass, who Frederick Douglass was like really, he was a proto-feminist, Frederick Douglass was like on it. When we look at all of these men, understanding them in the context of the Black feminist contemporaries who worked on them, right? Du Bois is worked on by Anna Julia Cooper. He's worked on by Ida B. Wells, who Ida B. Wells, funny enough, sort of sunned him. She considered him like a little brother. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that until recently. She was like, you'll be on my level one day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Anna Julia Cooper, who is really pushing him to understand Black women as intellectuals. So politically, he's very much uh, progressive in his gender ideals. He, thinks that, you know, Black women are, the, the woman's vote is vital to Negro progress, as he calls it. But he does not really see Black women as intellectuals until Anna Julia Cooper sort of kicks down the door in his mind. So, you know, with, with, with my sort of entree into this comes from that tradition in terms of it has never been an idea of my type of feminism is about uh, sort of abandoning Black men, or it certainly isn't about repeating narratives, white supremacist narratives about Black men, right? It certainly is a way of, I, you know, see myself as interrupting that. Mm -hmm. And with that, talking about intra-racial gender politics, meaning gender politics within the race, you have to work on Black men in terms of them getting to see themselves in terms of having patriarchal gender privilege. I think so many times black men see uh, racial subjectivity as trumping everything. Mm. And they don't see how within the race, there are hierarchies based on gender and class and sexuality. 
Yes. And those are some of the themes that really come through in this book in taking Morehouse as this particular case of creating a certain yes. type of Black masculinity. And so let's just start here. Um, you know, what does it mean to be a Morehouse man in the eyes of Morehouse College, in the eyes oh, of the yeah. men that you spoke to? Let's just kind of start there. And then we'll talk more about what you found through the course of your interviews and analysis. So if your readers are Southern or if they've been in spaces with, you know, Morehouse men, if they've been to law school with them and med school with them, et cetera, if they, you know, uh, they're in their communities, then they are probably a little bit familiar with the idea that Morehouse is a, as a school, its image far outsizes the actual size of the school, right? So Morehouse is a school about, oh, any given day, about 3,000 undergraduates. But the prominence of this thing that we call the Morehouse man, um, I liken it uh, in the book sometimes to how, you know, the military talks about, you know, the Marines or talks about the Navy, that the image and the brand of the institution are, 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 are really, um, um, they are, they're inextricably linked, right? That, um, that even when you're on the ground in the institution, you sometimes cannot divorce the actuality of it from the image promoted of it. So, you know, empirically speaking, you know, when I interviewed these uh, 32 men, and at this point they were all graduates of Morehouse. So these were all men in their early thirties, which was important for me because I wanted to make sure that I had men who were adult men so that they could have some actual reflexivity, some sort of, um, they could talk about their life histories in terms of what this Morehouse manhood thing meant for them asking a 22 year old they might have some merits but they just haven't there's no skin in the game yet they haven't sort of been tested out in the world about what that manhood means so i would say that every single one of the men i spoke to had a concept of what the morehouse man was common words they used to describe it was one they would say it's a brand that's the phrase they kept saying it's a brand it's a brand um you know that you know he's well spoken he's you know dignified um He's a race man and a race man meaning the concept of his attributes, his success speaks well for the race. He's a credit to his race, right? Um, then there were things that they didn't have to say, but that were very implied. He's heterosexual, mm. right? Um, he's married to a black woman who typically is also a certain type of uh, feminine uh, conformity, right? A certain type of respectability. There's a certain type of woman the Morehouse man does not marry, right? Mm -hmm. um, he, um, he uh, uh, financially, you know, that was always, in fact, many of them did say that outright, that the school put a large emphasis on success as wealth, um, mm -hmm. that their ideas of success, I mean, this is part of what you're getting to in terms of the constraints of masculinity, the idea of what was success was very narrowly defined that you had to be both a credit to your race, but being a credit to your race meant that you were wealthy, <laughs> right? <laughs> that they were, they had a harder time grasping being a credit to the race if you weren't well off, particularly in fields like business and politics and law and medicine, right? Um, and there's a certain type of conservatism also to the Morehouse man. So one of the things that I didn't know I was gonna find out is how politically conservative um, these men understood not only the college to be, but how the college really, uh, really mutes and really weeds out types of black politics that don't fit their sort of conservative agenda. And we're not talking necessarily conservative in the way that some readers might say, oh, you mean Republicans? 
there's a way of doing black conservatism culturally and politically that's not necessarily aligned with the Republican Party. I mean, you can be very democratic and conservative. I mean, Obama is a conservative in many ways, culturally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's certainly that. So, you know, when I was really, you know, getting to the gist of it, it was what was fascinating for me was that without this ever having to be necessarily written down, it's no you know, monument that says what a Morehouse man is, they all got the message and they all knew if they sort of were one or not. It's like, it's like you know, they all knew who was and who was not a Morehouse man. And they're also very particular about the Morehouse man representing someone who graduated from Morehouse. That Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that's very different from the way that other colleges, particularly uh, historically predominantly white colleges, sort of do their enrollment, which is for most of them, their thing is if we admitted you, then we graduate you because it's bad for our numbers to not graduate you, right? Like our ranking means that we graduate our students. Black colleges have resource constraints and they are often dealing with students who come from resource constraints so first generation low income etc so the way that they made sense of that instead of saying oh this is a problem that we're only for graduating 40 percent of our students in four years it became a narrative about masculinity oh well the students who couldn't make it were not men like us they weren't more house men so you get a cultural a curriculum, a cultural explanation for what I would see as a structural issue, mm. right? So meaning that they fell back hard on the culture as making sense of why some men weren't getting through instead of saying, maybe this place is homophobic and maybe this place, you know, doesn't, you know, we, black colleges don't have the resources, you know, that we should have. But sort of that's, you know, the part that was fascinating to me, the Morehouse man wasn't just sort of a prototype it was a logic, it was a way of thinking, right? It was a narrative about the, about the institution. Yes, yes. Well, let's take a, a short break before we get into some of these major arguments um, and finding that you had in your book. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Saida Grundy, who is the author of Respectable Politics and Paradox in Making the Morehouse Man. Now, before the break, you gave us a great kind of overview of really this kind of myth almost of who the Morehouse Man is or should be. Yes. And so now I want to kind of get into more of the meat of the book and some of the findings that you had. And I want to start um, with something that you really talk a lot about in the book, which is the Black male crisis and why it's so relevant to the type of man that Morehouse is trying to create. So talk a little bit more about first, what is the Black male crisis? Yes. And then we can kind of go from there. So one, it's so important that you just brought up this idea of the Morehouse man both being in some ways a real script for how to behave and in, in other ways, it's a mythology, right? Mm-hmm. So I say that because there's this tension between the, the mythological sort of, you know, uh, the prototype that's not attainable and, 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 the, and the real men who strive for it. 
the black belt crisis can be understood in similar ways in terms of there are sort of real things that we can examine about what's happening with young black men and boys. And then there's a mythology about the crisis on top of that. So to give your listeners a, a bit of an insight. So uh, deindustrialization here, like we're getting into the footnotes. <laughs> in the late 1970s and 1980s, think about Nixon, think about Reagan. Deindustrialization was when uh, U.S. economies started practicing uh, what we call neoliberalism, which means they started freeing companies and markets from their governments, right? So now Ford can go overseas and GM. And what happened was lots of the jobs that used to sustain blue collar middle-class people started evaporating. And those jobs disproportionately were evaporating from black people and evaporating from women, particularly black women, because so many of the jobs black women did were being replaced not only with foreign labor, but with automation. Your, I tell my students all the time, your smartphone does about 160 jobs that women used to do, right? Um, and so what happens in black communities, particularly urban black communities, is we see this plummeting economically in the 1980s, where, you know, when people talk about sort of the, you know, uh, there used to be a time when, you know, black families had, you know, male heads of households and everybody had a daddy. Well, that's because daddies had jobs, right? The, the, mm-hmm. These are economic things. These are not cultural failures. There is a difference that happens when crack floods, you know, uh, U.S. streets and jobs are taken away. So when we talk about the black male crisis, what's important about that era of the industrialization is although this was something that happened to black people writ large, like I said, black women were affected, black families were affected. The language we used to talk about it focused on what was happening to men, particularly because men were seen as breadwinners in households. And so the crisis of the Black male is a way of talking about the rise in mass incarceration, the rise in unemployment, and the rise in urban uh, crime as Black male problems, right? That these basically all stem from Black men either, you know, failing to ascribe to masculine, you know, uh, gender norms or uh, being unable to. And, you know, these are not things that sort of come out of thin air. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that uh, Ebony Magazine, which if, if you all are an elder millennial, you, and if you're Gen X, you remember <laughs> Ebony Magazine. Ebony Magazine was like the time of Black households. Every household had an Ebony Magazine subscription. The editor-in-chief of Ebony Magazine, Lerone Bennett, went to Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Lerone Bennett push out, puts out 1983. Now, 1983 is the highest recorded unemployment rate in 20th century American history. 1983, he puts out this cover that says the Black man in crisis. Now, what's very interesting about that cover is it's a black man in a pinstripe suit with his briefcase getting out of a yellow taxi. It's supposed to symbolize the, the, you know, the often, you know, disgusting black man can't get a cab in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So that, so the black man in crisis, instead of saying this is a black family crisis, a black racial crisis that is affecting everyone who's black and urban and poor, he uses a visual language that this is a crisis of black men. And then in his um, special letter from the editor, he goes on to say, you know, things that we might call problematic. 
Um, you know, he says, you know, this blackmail crisis, you know, basically uh, black women can't get married because not enough black men are graduating from college, right? With the assumption that, you know, women, one, need to marry college-educated men and women are marrying men anyway, right? But so there's all sorts of heteronormative, very, you know, classist assumptions. And then he talks about um, how it's a problem that black women are outpacing black men in college and in professional settings. So again, there was a way of talking about deindustrialization as an economic crisis that affected black people, but black male crisis was a way of shaping that as this is disproportionately affecting black men. The number there, you, you, like any statistical narrative, you can tell it in one way, which is incomplete. And that's what the black male crisis was. Instead of saying, oh, actually, you know, black women's jobs are being hit as well. It became this narrative about the way to bring the race out of this is to emphasize, you know, uh, what's what's best for the race and what's best for black men. And in my book, I really I really harp on that because that is not new historically, that if you actually look at a longer uh, history coming out of Reconstruction, often what has been argued about the black race is what's best for black people is what's best for particularly college educated middle class black men because the idea of racial leadership is historically has has been made almost synonymous with college educated middle class black men to the you know erasure of all the other types of black leadership we have um and also to the erasure of other issues that were that should have been given top priority um and 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 in black racial politics so for example one of the uh, guiding principles that really uh, influenced my book was the work of Kathy Cohen, who you know well, Kathy Cohen, who uh, wrote this book about, uh, about AIDS as a political crisis. Kathy Cohen's a political scientist. And she says, you know, let's think about this. If we were to talk about what should have been top priority in terms of black politics, the AIDS crisis should have been top priority because it was disproportionately killing black people. That should have been the, the Black Lives Matter of the day, right? Mm -hmm. But because it was affecting hyper-marginalized Black people, queer Black people, poor Black people, Black women, right? It got pushed to the margins. My book is basically a book into that, which says, well, if we can talk about how politics are, are made invisible by, by because they, they focus on marginalized people or affect marginalized people, then let's tell the story of how black male elites also sort of make their politics bigger, right? They sort of, they sort of take up all the air in this idea that what affects them is what affects the race. Yes. So you have this constructed black male crisis that's really centering on black men, black middle-class, black upper-class yeah. men. And so then we have this institution of higher yes. learning Morehouse. Uh, now tell me how Morehouse uses this idea of a black male crisis in regards yeah. to making, you know, making Morehouse men and making its institutional reputation. Yes. So, you know, Morehouse is not an island. And in terms of it is not operating um, in some sort of silo away from the world. And in higher education, there are few schools that don't have what we call a blackmail problem. And now the way they construct blackmail problem means black male enrollment is lower than black female enrollment. Now that's also important to me in terms of that's how they construct this as a problem, right? Mm -hmm. 
So Morehouse being not in a vacuum has understood, you know, from the 70s, 80s on that it saw itself as sort of the defenders of a group that was uh, under attack, right? Or or, or a group that was being hyper-marginalized. But to be clear, Morehouse sees itself as making elites of what it also sees as America's most downtrodden group. And that's why I talk about the book as paradoxical, right? That they see themselves as making the best of from what they also see as America's most victimized group. Now, feminists have takes on both of these, which is, what, <laughs> which is how I entered this. So Black male crisis for Morehouse is front and center in the narrative about themselves because they see themselves as doing something that is very important for the race, which is taking these men who are otherwise marginalized and would otherwise, you know, be in prison, not, not true. Um, you know, even my respondents said things like, you know, there's more black men in prison than there are in college. That is not true. That is just statistically and factually untrue. But the fact that they believe that mm-hmm. tells us something about, uh, there's, a, there's a legal scholar I love called uh, Paul Butler, and he made this term black male exceptionalism. Black male exceptionalism, is, like we just talked about, is a way of discussing uh, a social issue, social problems as disproportionately affecting black men, even when that's not true, or mm-hmm. sort of, you know, or they are sort of uh, uh, disproportionately um, uh, uh, about black men, right? So, you know, you can take, you know, any number of issues and filter it through black male exceptionalism, and then you come out with basically Morehouse's narrative about itself, which is somehow what they're doing, um, this sort of, you know, this cultural rhetoric they have, the the rules, the stipulations. Morehouse is a very, it doesn't really feel like a college in the way that we might think about most, you know, colleges being relaxed and like, you know, our students probably come to class in pajamas. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not like that at all. The idea that these Black men need this conformity, they need this rigidity, they need these rules because otherwise, you know, they will be lost to the street. Again, not true. These are, you know, these kids are coming from pretty much stable <laughs> backgrounds. They're not, they're not in line to go to prison. But, but this becomes the rhetoric, right? That black male crisis becomes the moral justification for everything that they do. And it also becomes a moral, moral justification for not looking at the offsets, the, the, the outcomes of what they do. So when I come in and I'm talking about, you know, the way you construct manhood has an effect on how homophobia and sexual assault are done here. Mm-hmm. The idea that like, like, no, but you know, what's, in, what's, in, what's important is that, you know, without this, you know, these, you know, we, these boys will be, you know, they'll be wayward, they will be lost to whatever. It becomes a moral politics, a, a moral weapon really against criticism of that process when you can say, but this process, you know, is for uh, the good of the race and for the good of, of young black men. And where else would you have all these black men, you know, being so upright and suited and booted, et cetera? Um, that became, you know, a, a, a big part of what I was basically grappling with in the book. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. I mean, again, so many paradoxes, right, throughout mm-hmm. the book, throughout the process of making these Morehouse men. And yes. you just spend, um, you know, a good bit of attention around, as you just mentioned, what happens when you're constructing this very narrow type yes. of masculinity? How does that then impact um, approaches or perspectives around um, LGBTQ issues, yes. around campus sexual assault? Um, but I want to talk about, because I know our time, we can't talk about the whole book. So I want to talk <laughs> about, you know, something that you just mentioned, which is this idea of, you know, the good of the race and really banking that yeah. on these black yeah. male elites, because in the book, you talk about social justice capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, this was a concept, it's new to me. I mean, I heard it from you uh-huh. when uh-huh. we were in- <laughs> because we're part of a writing group but (laughs) I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what social justice capitalism is and then how we see this in the process of making Morehouse men yes okay so this is actually this is something that your readers probably have witnessed and observed and they just didn't know it had a name so take Jay-Z right take (laughs) all the black people out here who say that the solution to our, our racial injustice problems is to create more black millionaires. Or, you know, when Jay-Z, you know, when the NFL hired him basically, right, to like sort of be their racial consultant, being, being, be there, you know, be their black man who's gonna smooth over all this stuff with Kaepernick, which I consider throwing Kaepernick's calls under the bus. Jay said, you know, we're, we're post-kneeling, right? Mm. That somehow, Social justice capitalism actually comes from a historical moment. It comes from after MLK's assassination. Remember, MLK has all these lieutenants, right? All these sort of uh, disciples. And one of them is Andrew Young. <laughs> and the, the movement is sort of splitting in a couple directions. Coretta Scott King, who is far more progressive than people know, who really understood her husband's legacy of democratic socialism, King really believed that that the vote was free, it didn't cost white people anything, but that economic justice would. And his idea of economic justice was from the bottom up, raising the plight of the black poor, right? Economic justice then was not an individual cause, it was a bringing up communities, what we might call reparations. But Andy Young takes it a separate way and his idea is top down, meaning, the best way to get economic justice is to make more rich black people, right? Like a trickle down economics for wealth. Mm -hmm. So this is really important in terms of it. My argument is that it, it, it sort of gender bifurcates the race in terms of black male elites are going politically towards a more conservative, more centrist, sort of more seat at the table type of politics. And the black poor are getting feminized. The black poor are disproportionately female headed households and they're disproportionately in low wage occupations, et cetera. And so you see this idea emerge. Remember this was, King did not believe in this at all. King very proudly called himself a democratic socialist and he had, he despised capitalism. He talked about it all the time. But then you get this idea that emerges from these post-MLK black male leaders that, you know what, capitalism can be used for anti-racist good. Capitalism in itself can be anti-racist. This is not something that, you know, most of the history of, you know, all the black Marxists and the black communists, I mean, they despise this idea because 
to them, it was like, you're looking for crumbs from the table and you're looking to sort of be at the seat of the table of the very systems that we see as the root cause of injustice, right? So social justice capitalism is really the idea that you can take sort of entrepreneurial fixes into black social institutions. So it's the idea of instead of um, saying that, oh, policies and government actions and laws are, uh, are what causes our injustice, it's a way of saying, oh, no, what we, uh, what we really need are sort of entrepreneurial fixes, right? So you can take, you know, situations like, again, the black male crisis, right? Which you can say the black male crisis isn't a crisis of black men, it's a crisis of the United States, right? It's the US. The United States government created these issues for black people when we literally freed up the jobs from communities that made these households poor. But instead you say, you know what, you know what young black men need? They need charter schools, right? An entrepreneurial fix. They need My Brother's Keeper, which remember My Brother's Keeper uh, is not law, it's not policy. It was a presidential initiative that was a public-private partnership. So it got private corporations involved in the lives of young black men and, and also young Latinx men. So again, these are ideas that instead of addressing issues as structural, mm -hmm. we address them as a market-based solutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, and that's really, so socialist capitalism, particularly in a place like Morehouse really comes into play because Morehouse is often grooming their students to perform and to um, sort of uh, make the good graces of corporate donors. I mean, quite literally picking students, cherry picking students, sort of take on tour, these philanthropic tours for uh, corporate donors. And you would be very surprised the corporate alliances that Black colleges have. So, you know, uh, Betsy Davos and the Walton family and these, you know, the Chick-fil-A CEO, these are very far right organizations. And so what social justice capitalism really makes us ask is why is it when it comes to young black men, we have these strange bedfellows, people who hate black people are somehow invested in young black men being, you know, uh, having a suit and tie on. Well, that tells you a lot about their interests, right? Their sort of idea about Black people is we just need to be respectable. And then that's the solution to our problems. Instead of, you know, saying that our problems are a result of their greed, mm -hmm. you know, our problems are a matter of us just pulling up our pants. Mm, yes. And I mean, they're in another paradox of, <laughs> yes. as, you know, as an yes. institution, but also uh, the men who go there, right, who may have bought Absolutely. into and of course, are very familiar with this brand, right, the Morehouse yes. man. Um, yeah. But once there, kind of learn a little bit more about what's behind the brand. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, you know, writing about this was kind of like, when you write about the military, but you respect soldiers, right? So it's like, you know, when I'm writing about the men themselves, they grapple with this, like they were not monolithically cheerleaders for, you know, the Morehouse brand or even how Morehouse operated as an institution. They had vastly varying degrees of, of their critiques of the institution, right? And one of the things they talked about, um, particularly there was a there was a very uh, sort of vocal minority of men who saw themselves as politically to the left of the college, and they and many of them would say the college was politically right, right? That 
you know, uh, in this way, we literally do mean right. So Morehouse um, has a history of, you know, some well-known Black Republicans being its president. Um, but also, like I said, those those right-wing interests being at play in the college, right? The donors, the board, et cetera. Remember that the Chick-fil-A CEO was President Morehouse's board. He might still be, but for some time. And I mean, Chick-fil-A is as right-wing of a corporation as you can get. I mean, they literally don't think gay people deserve chicken. So it's like, you know, so there are Black men who grapple with this. And one of the things that, you know, came out in the book is, that construction of the Morehouse man wasn't just about how their bodies had to conform. It was also about how their ideologies and their politics had to conform. So we might think of Black colleges like, oh, shouldn't those be like the most pro-Black, most, you know, Afrocentric sort of, you know, most left places, right? Like, you know, if you watch the movie School Days, remember there's Dap Dunlap, who's like divest from apartheid. And because Spike Lee went to Morehouse, School Days was about Morehouse. And what Dap Dunlap, the young radical, comes up against is the administration being very conservative. And he's saying, how could you support apartheid when these are Black people being slaughtered in South Africa, right? But the administration has their own conservative fiscal interest in not divesting. And so that's really, you know, the story, despite also uh, when he made that film as a young uh, film student, Morehouse would not let him shoot on campus. He had to shoot that whole movie next door at Clark Atlanta because Morehouse wouldn't let him shoot on their own campus. And now they love him as an alum because he's wealthy. They did not love Spike when he was a, when he was a, a young creative. So yeah, so that becomes, you know, uh, politically sort of the larger story for me is, Black colleges actually do have a, they have a, their own sort of uh, uh, schizophrenia politically in terms of, you can look at, you know, schools like Howard in the 80s, famously, you know, had radical contingencies, right? Howard was kicking apartheid behind, right? They were, the students were far to the left. But then you get this tension of like holding up sort of old guard black bourgeoisie politics um so you know morehouse is tied to atlanta's black political power structure and that black political power structure has very much been about a centrist idea of just getting a seat at the table mm -hmm. um so yeah so that's part of the story is that men were not only sort of grappling with where they fit in in terms of that morehouse manhood sometimes it was suppressing parts of them or they had to make parts themselves outside of, of, of the image, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you talk a little bit at the ends of the book about unlearning the Morehouse brand. Yeah. yeah. Us, uh, for our listeners, a little bit more about how some of the men that you spoke to were thinking through their time yeah. at Morehouse now as, like you said, adults who primarily oh, married in their careers, you know, with yeah. kids. How are they thinking about that, that branding? So, you know, in that conclusion, the reason I started thinking about the unlearning of Morehouse is because I went back. I went, I was invited back to guest lecture in a classroom and it's like all these freshmen, right? <laughs> and I just had this realization that they, you know, Morehouse was not static, right? That they were actually um, 
far more progressive. Uh, you know, they weren't perfect, but they were more progressive than the men I was in school with, you know, in the, in the early aughts, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of it is understanding that, um, as we said, Morehouse is not a vacuum. And so when men emerge from these place, this place that has pumped them up with the ideas of, you know, what a Black man is and isn't, that's pumped them up with the idea that, you know, no, no one's more successful than a black uh, than a Morehouse man, and a Morehouse man somehow, you know, has a stronger handshake than everyone else. And they have to confront a world and actually reckon with like, what have I been sold basically about what success is? What have I been sold about what professionalism is? So some of these things are quite literally they were changing because economies and professional changing. So for example. You know, when I was coming out of school in the 2000s, this is when like Silicon Valley was like popping up. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating to see Morehouse students still be like drilled. I'm talking about like military style drilled and like how to wear a suit. And you know, there are classes that are, Morehouse um, has a really, really large corporate business influence. Like the culture of it is very businessy. So about uh, a third of the students are business majors. And if you're a business major, there's a mandatory class called uh, leadership and professional development. This is an etiquette class, teaching you how to use a shrimp fork, teaching you how to make small talk about Beethoven. If this sounds ridiculous and cartoonish to you, it's because you've probably interviewed for a job in which you're like, no one's gonna ever ask you about Beethoven. Or like the idea of being drilled on how to wear a suit. If you show up to Silicon Valley in a suit, they will laugh at you that you will look like a Martian to them. The lawyers show up in biker shorts. They, no one wears a suit in these 21st century professions. And then to that, most of us are working from home. <laughs> so it's like everything that they were sort of drilled in and, 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 and had to sort of study as their cultural curriculum is ironically outmoded. Mm. And to me, that was a, a very large indication of how, you know, Black conservatism, uh, you know, when we talk about the Du Boisian veil, we talk about, you know, the Du Boisian veil, it restricts how white people can see into Black lives, how they can understand us. And part of what was happening at Morehouse is that they had an imagination about the white world that was also distorted. Like, they somehow thought that they would need to make small talk about Bach. If you go to Wall Street, the white boys on Wall Street want to talk to you about Yo Gotti and Lil Baby. Nobody, they don't, they don't listen to Bach. What are you talking about, right? Like, they want to talk about Doja Cat. Like, like what? Like, you know, it's like, so this was what was fascinating is when they had to emerge from the college, they were basically unlearning the world that was sold to them. The world that said your success will be based on Um, how clean your suit is and your success will be based on how, you know, your tie is tied. They were unlearning basically what their interaction was with with that mainstream world they were sold on because at Morehouse, everything that's that's done in that sort of cultural boot camp, the justification is, well, this is, you know, white people will judge you if you don't know this. And, you know, and it's this, this idea of everything they did was for the white gaze. But when you're actually into the world, the white gaze is far more nuanced than that. The implications of the white gaze are far more nuanced. And there's, in many ways, it does not prepare them for what they 
actually encounter about the white gaze, which is like the white gaze they encounter is like a 2.0. It's like the iPhone 13 white gaze and they're on the iPhone 6 white gaze <laughs> in college, right? That's how it is. <laughs> yes. Well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Saida Grundy, the author of Respectable Politics and Paradox in Making the Morehouse Man. Now you have given us just a little bit of insight into some of the main themes of the book. There's so much more. So I don't want listeners to think, well, this is the whole book. No, there's so much more. (laughs) Uh, But you know, we don't have time to talk about everything and give it its just due. So I want to in the in the time that we have left I want to kind of shift focus a little bit and talk about kind of writing this book especially for you as again a Spelman graduate as Miss Maroon and White and you know I'm sure folks you know in your own community right alumni fellow grads when you're saying hey I'm writing this book yeah I'm sure there were some turned heads or maybe even absolutely of like you know, airing dirty laundry, so to speak. Tell me about that process of really writing this book and even kind of some of those responses. I read some of those footnotes that you put in there. So I have a little idea of of some of the responses, but um, can you talk more about that? Yes. So I guess first is sort of the origin story of where this book began with me, where it was born in my mind. And that was as an undergraduate uh, at, at Selman. So uh long story that I can't make that short so when I was was a sophomore um I was taking you know my qualitative methods class like the good little sociologist feminist sociologist I am and we had to find basically a project to do with our ethnography and I I just didn't have one and all my classmates said oh Saida you should go over and audition for the Miss Maroon and White pageant now Miss Maroon and White is a big deal. Every black college, black college queens are a big deal. This is something that does not translate well to the culture of PWIs, but in black colleges, it's a big deal to run for the queen of the college because it's not like a just a homecoming queen. You're the queen all year long, right? So this I thought was, you know, absurd, but I was like, it does make a good project, right? Because I was already uh, an editor for Morehouse's student paper. So I was already sort of known as this uh, feminist malcontent. <laughs> and, you know, I was gonna, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, submerge myself, right? Um, into this culture of, of the pageant. I go to interview, it's like a tribunal. Like there's supposed to be five people interviewing you. There are like 25 Morehouse students showed up. <laughs> to interview me because again it was like why like her like this would be like this would be like like uh like Ruth Bader Ginsburg showing up to like a life university you know interview for the presidency and being like why are you at Jerry Falwell's college right so I end up getting in the pageant (laughs) I I mean it was at that point I was just made like this has already gone too far this was an experiment and now I'm in it Uh, now I have to actually go spend money on a dress I was mad about that and then I ended up winning the pageant so when you win and you are Miss Prune and White you are in Morehouse's culture 
you are, again, very paradoxical. You're the feminine ideal of a men's college, right? So like you're supposed to represent their ideal femininity, which mm-hmm. if you know me, this is highly ironic. Um, and so, but you're also exposed to all this culture of Morehouse. You're exposed, excuse me, <coughs> to all their rituals, to their new student orientation. You're exposed to SGA because you're actually a sitting member of SGA at that point. So you're the, you're the only woman who has power in the student body. But on the sort of behind the curtain for me, this was also a project. This was making my awareness um, about sort of how manhood was done at this place. And that particularly kicked off my junior year when there was a very vicious attack on a student named Gregory Love. Gregory Love was a sophomore. He um, uh, was in the shower room and he peeked over a stall to a student whose name was Aaron Price. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. Like I was just looking for my roommate. Aaron Price um, did not take that as an explanation. And Aaron Price went back to his room, grabbed the baseball bat and came back and beat Greg Love. I mean, he almost killed him. He very nearly killed him. This became the first time that the state of Georgia was going to try a hate crime statute. This was a new, this this was the first time, but because Greg Love would not admit or would not discuss his sexuality, they couldn't try it, which is also like, I have a whole thing about hate crimes and how progressives need to get off hate crimes. They're kind of useless. But this for me was, I mean, it just, it just hit very home because the college's response to this wasn't, oh, what a tragedy. How could, how could violence happen at a place that tries so hard to dismantle the idea of Black men being violent? Their response to it was, well, what steps should we take to remove gay students from the rest of the student population? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, should we accept gay students here? That was their response. And so this became my um, my foray into what you know what we call in the field hegemonic masculinity. The study of masculinity as not just a relationship between men and women, but a study of masculinity between men and other men. Mm-hmm. So that really became my foray um, into this. And um, you know my my writing process, as you well know, um, I believe that writing is social and I believe that you can only write as well as you read and now I believe you can only write as well as the people around you (laughs) (laughs) and so I you know my writing process in this uh I think it's important for readers to understand academic books are so different from trade books the Mm -hmm. whole process is so different a trade book you might pitch them an idea and then you sort of usually pretty quickly turn around a project, right? Within 12 months, within 18 months, et cetera. Academic books, particularly your first book, which for many of us is based on our dissertations, you can be sitting with this stuff for like 10 years. So it's a very fine aged wine, or I'm I'm a Kentuckian, so it's a fine aged bourbon. (laughs) Um, and, And you really have time to sort of, uh, prune your your intellectual take on these things and also as you are writing this things are happening so you know in the time I was in grad school my brother's keeper was introduced which kicked up this idea of black male respectability to the white house level right now we have a presidential 
uh, level of, of, of thinking that, you know, black boys need to get it together um, on a cultural aspect, which fun fact, many people think of My Brother's Keeper as an initiative that came out of the Department of Education. It didn't, it came out of the Department of Justice and it was a response to the problem of black male incarceration. So the idea that literally let's keep black men out of prison by, you know, making sure they're sued and booted. So all that to say, you know, in, in my writing, it's a long, long arc, right? So there was like sort of a decade behind this, but I also was just so influenced by what other fields, other scholars are saying in Black studies, right? So it's like, I, I originally started this project as a discussion about the Black middle class and how gender was a vehicle, a cultural vehicle of mobility for the black middle class. And that's a very sociologically based, very sound argument. But by the time I transferred from dissertation to you know, writing the book, that seemed stale to me. And it just, I no longer was that interested in, or, or in answering a sociological question. I felt that my question had not only gotten larger, it had jumped that it was more an interdisciplinary question that had to do with black studies not necessarily sociology. So I always say that, you know, my finished project became a historical, you know, uh, analysis of a political science question answered with sociological methods. Mm. You know, that's really what it became, that it was no longer sort of belong to this small uh, subfield called Black middle class studies and sociology. This became a question about black gender politics. And for that, I had to, you know, I was very vested in uh, political science history and, and black studies writ large. So my writing process was made better because there were so many scholars who had, you know, who had fed this question before or who had, who had, the garden was right for me to make this a question. Yes. Well, the book is absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank, um, you. thank you so much for being here with us this morning, sharing just a little bit about, about your book, Dr. Grundy. Thank you so much. You're, you are so welcome. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for this. Thank you again to Dr. Saida Grundy. She is the author of Respectable Politics and Paradox in Making the Morehouse Man. It's always so good when I get to sit down and chat with Dr. Grundy. And as you can tell from our conversation, the book has so much in it. We could not get to everything. So if you want to learn more, you know what you have to do. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Who else is out there learning to surf? I know I am because I'm definitely riding these waves. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Why don't you join me back here next week? And if you missed part of today's conversation, guess what? You can still listen to the replay on WYXR.org or subscribe to this show in podcast format. Let's grab coffee wherever you stream podcasts. I cannot wait to be back with you next Monday.